This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to Session 19, Spiritual Warfare, Part B, from the series, Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Zur Fellowship. Alright, so last night we uh, started talking about uh, spiritual warfare. So we're in session 19, and we talked about some of the modern tactics that are used in spiritual warfare, uh, spiritual mapping, uh, and territorial spirits, and uh, tonight we're going to be uh, looking, starting with uh, talking about deliverance ministries, uh, demonic activities, um, legal declarations and symbolic actions, we're going to look at some scriptures that use this uh, language of warfare to describe uh, our part of our experience as, as believers. So, yeah, we already looked at territorial spirits and the how, you know, the concept that we see in scripture of uh, nations being governed by these spiritual entities or represented by these spiritual entities uh, in one way or another and you know some of the similarities and differences with uh, some modern conceptions of spiritual warfare and what that actually looks like Uh, so today yeah we're gonna start by talking about demons and deliverance ministries so we've already been uh through session 18 talking about the power of the spirit and so there's a good power an empowerment that comes from god through the holy spirit but there are other spiritual powers out there that are not good there there is a one spirit that is holy the holy spirit but then there are hosts of unclean or unholy or evil spirits these are different terms that scripture uses to describe them um so there are dark spiritual forces out there there's not just good spiritual powers there are evil spiritual powers and we have warnings in the torah against involvement in the occult leviticus 19 26 to 31 uh i we don't need to look at that one but let's look at deuteronomy 18 verses 9 to 14 It says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you are about to dispossess listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And of course, the passage goes on. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, uh, from, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So there are all these means of tapping into the spiritual realm that are characteristic of the pagans and all of those means are off limits but there is one means that god 
gives us, and that's through the prophet who proclaims God's word. And, of course, the ultimate prophet like Moses is Yeshua. And so uh, our connection to God is through Yeshua, right? Um, he's our source of spirituality. So, yeah, there's a lot of bad ways to engage the spiritual world, and then there are uh, very limited good ways. It's kind of, uh, in some ways, it's analogous to there's a lot of animals out there, but only some of them are good for eating. There's a lot of stuff out there, but only some of it is good for our consumption as believers. There's a lot of entertainment out there. Only some of it is good for us to take in. So uh, we read a lot about evil spirits in Scripture, uh, especially when we get to the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament. Uh, we see in Yeshua's ministry uh, a lot of encounters with demons, with evil spirits, and Yeshua casting out spirits uh, and uh, sending out his disciples, commissioning them to go and cast out uh, spirits, among other things. Um, so, yeah, there's this, this world of of spiritual forces and a lot of a lot of them are bad and that had that plays a lot into uh, modern conceptions of spiritual warfare right and so deliverance ministries are are based on the idea that demons are the cause of a wide range of physical mental emotional and spiritual ills among believers so the idea is you've got all these demons in your system that you need to be cleansed. You need to have them uh, cast out, expelled from you. Uh, and so in this worldview, demonic activity is seen as underlying all kinds of human problems and issues. Uh, once again, I went to everyone's favorite non-official source, Wikipedia, that you're not supposed to quote from, but... <laughs> I wanted to, get, again, get a popular level view. Um, it's uh, only one step above Dr. Google, but that's okay. <laughs> Not Anyone can go on and write anything they want on Wikipedia, so you, know, you never know what you're going to get when you look up something. But um, this is the description that happened to be current at the time I looked it up. Uh, and this is uh, describing kind of the basis behind deliverance ministries. It says, demons can enter a person's life in many different ways. Some can come with objects that are believed to harbor demons. These may have demons because of what they are. For example, fantasy horror novels, Dungeons and Dragons games, certain CDs, artifacts depicting pagan gods, sacred texts from a non-Christian religion, etc. Or because of a sinful history. Example, a piece of jewelry from an adulterous relationship, an object purchased with greed, etc. Places can hold demonic presences that can then enter the lives of people living there. Indian burial grounds and homes or rooms where violence or abuse occurred are examples of these kinds of places. Demons can also, quote, run in families. Demons can run in a family when ancestors were Satanists, Masons, or witches, for example, or who committed sins such as physical abuse, adultery, or alcohol abuse. Some claim that negative traits and practices run in families because of demonic presences that are passed down from parent to child. Others claim that physical ailments and persistent problems such as poverty and addicted behaviors, drugs, pornography, etc., can also be caused by ancestral sin and the family curses that result. 
So there's a, a, a wide range of uh, different concepts woven into this. Uh, so, but del so deliverance ministry can focus on, um, you know, casting out these demons or expelling these demons from your system, overcoming spiritual oppression, um, and dealing with generational curses, a lot of different things like that, right? And so, yeah, these deliverance ministries focus on casting out or binding these demonic forces in order to deliver people from that oppression. And so uh, we mentioned last time a common tactic is, you know, once you diagnose someone as having an evil spirit, the next step is to try and name the demon. You, It's believed that you come up with a name. Once you know the demon's name, then you can exercise authority over it and more um, deftly get rid of it or something like that. So, and, it, you know, it is interesting. Um, this, this possibly shows up one time in Scripture where we see when Yeshua is talking to the Gedarene demoniac, right? And Yeshua says, what is your name? interesting why would Yeshua ask for the demon's name and um, there are several possible answers and the answer given by people who uh, promote this interpretation would say that's because he wanted to gain authority over the demon this was a tactic a spiritual warfare tactic that Yeshua knew that if he knew the demon's name then he could cast it out um, and he wasn't able to cast it out without knowing the demon's name I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, I think, well, we'll look at that in a bit, how Yeshua had um, pretty incredible authority over demons. So I'm not convinced that he would have been unable to cast it out without that. And and we'll look at that later. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, some people, uh, and it's interesting, you look at the kind of people that go through deliverance ministry, and you, you hear stories of people who, um, go through a deliverance ministry and come out changed, right? Uh, there, there are people who attest to overcoming addictive behaviors or uh, being healed or overcoming depression or mental illness or sinful habits or whatever it may be. Um, so there are stories of, you know, real testimonies of people that experience these sorts of things. Uh, but then other people keep going through deliverance ministry over and over and over again with no apparent change, no apparent result. So what does that mean? Right? There, there's a number of questions that come up, uh, at least for me. And maybe there's other questions than the one I list, ones I listed here, but these were ones I thought of. Uh, can a believer be possessed by a demon? That's a big one, right? Because... If we, our followers of Yeshua, have truly experienced him and been filled with his spirit, how can a demon inhabit that same place, right? Now, uh, some people will want to make a distinction between possession and oppression. They'll say, you know, maybe a believer cannot be possessed by a demon, but they could still be oppressed by a demon, and uh, maybe, I don't know. Um, that's 
That's one distinction that some people will make. Here's another question. Can places or objects be possessed by demons? Uh, we talked last night about territorial spirits, and I was arguing that the biblical evidence points to these uh, angelic representatives of political military entities, not so much geographical locations. Uh, so that's neither evidence for or against uh, answering this question, right? Uh, can, can a place be possessed by a demon? Can an object be possessed by a demon? An, an inanimate object, right? Um, you know, you think about, and we've, we've talked about this in regard to the Holy Spirit. The, one of the characteristics of ruach in Hebrew, of spirit, is that it is dynamic. You can't put breath in a box because it's not, ruach means moving air. Once the air stops moving, it's not ruach anymore. You, so ruach has to inhabit something that's living, breathing, right? A person who's breathing, God's breath working in us and through us and giving us life. So it, uh, well, this doesn't categorically disprove the idea. It does make you question, how, how would that work for an evil spirit to possess something that can't breathe? I don't know. It's worth pondering. Another question is, how common is demonic possession today? Uh, this is a big one, right? You read in the Gospels, and, and there's all these accounts, you know, happening, bam, 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 of people encountering, Yeshua's encountering people possessed by demons. And in Acts, you read of encounters with people possessed by demons. And it makes it sound like this was so common. Everyone knew about it. Everyone uh, probably had seen it in their lifetime uh, or maybe knew someone who had been possessed by a demon or whatever. Uh, whereas today, it's not, at least on, in society at large, it's not something that people acknowledge, right? Uh, you don't, you, you don't go around seeing people and, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, it depends on the circles of believers that you hang out with more, I guess. Um, some people are going to say, oh yeah, I've seen, I know so many people have been possessed by demons, but, but, um, yeah. Is it, how common is it today? I mean, that's, that's part of the debate, right? Is it something that's everyone's got demons in them and some have more and some have less and, um, the ones that have less are more functional. I, I don't know. I'm not going to try and come up with concrete answers to these questions. And, you know, as I was preparing this session, I realized this is, this could be a whole series in itself, just on demonology and angelology and spiritual forces and stuff like that. And, and we don't, we are not able to answer all these questions here, but there's some things that we need to think about as we talk about these things. So what I want to do, though, is look at the example of Yeshua and the authority he exercises over demons that we read about in the Gospels. So we're going to start by looking at Mark chapter 1. So in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately... Oh, Mark really likes that word, immediately. <laughs> in, in Greek, you're reading, and it's like, it happens over and over again. Everything's happening immediately. 
right? Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Um, that's the same response you read at the end of Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 7. Um, he taught as one who had authority, right? And then uh, Mark places that intentionally just in front of what's about to happen because first there's Yeshua's verbal authority and teaching and then that authority is demonstrated in the spiritual realm. And immediately <laughs> there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Yeshua of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Yeshua rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So, here Yeshua is exercising authority in his teaching and authority in being able to deliver people from demonic possession. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. So this is the passage where uh, Yeshua comes to the country of the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes, or the Gergesenes. Um, no one knows quite which is correct, because we have manuscript evidence for all of those variations. But something like that. That, that place, no one really knows how to pronounce. So that's where he went. Uh, actually, this is a fascinating story, because you read the version in Matthew, and there's two demoniacs, Right? You read the version here in Mark, and there's only one. And there's all this confusion as, as to exactly where it happened. And it just it seems like the whole story is just like, that was so crazy. Like, was it one guy? Was it two guys? Just, I mean, it felt like there were so many guys, right? <laughs> you know, we, we don't even have the details straight. But, but, I mean, there are some details that are very clear that show up in, in all the accounts, uh, in, in, in all the Gospels about this story. But it is it is interesting that you you see that was it one guy was it two guy well you know probably the answer is yes uh, somehow right uh, you know di different people remember the same event different ways and that doesn't make one person's memory wrong and the other person's memory right but yeah you can see that happening right <laughs> disciples are sitting around yeah remember when Yeshua healed that one guy and the other one's like no it was two <laughs> now I'm sure it was one. All right, well, let's, let's take a look at this. And when Yeshua had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and among the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Yeshua from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Yeshua, son of the Most High God? Doesn't that sound like what we just read? It's like, this is what the demons keep saying whenever they encounter Yeshua. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. 
And Yeshua asked him, here's, here's where he says, he says, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. All right, this is kind of a cool story. By the way, what does, what does the name Legion make you think of? If you just hear that word, Legion. Romans. A legion of soldiers, right? This is like the evil spiritual potency of Rome wrapped up inside one person. The spiritual representation of Rome in one guy. Poor guy. And so Yeshua comes to this place. It's Gentile territory, first of all. So he's in, he's in an unclean place. There's tombs. It's, it's a very unclean place. There's an unclean man who lives in these tombs, filled with unclean spirits. And nearby, there's a herd of unclean animals grazing, these pigs. This, like, just the whole thing is, like, for the disciples, it must have just been giving them the heebie-jeebies, right? Like, <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> and this guy comes running to Yeshua, right? It's like, he, these demons had a death wish or something, right? They didn't try running away from him. They're like, they're like, what are you doing here before the time? Right? Last time we were talking about Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending, and this rabbinic interpretation that these are the angels representing the different kingdoms, the different empires in history. So the last one was the, the angel of Edom, going, which represents Rome. Edom is the code word for Rome, right? Edom, going up higher and higher and higher, and Jacob's like, what? What's he doing? Is he ever going to come back down? Um, you know, these demons are like, what are you doing here, Yeshua? The fall of Rome isn't supposed to be for a long time yet. You've come too early. That's, that's one way of looking at the story. They knew, somehow, the evil spirits knew that their time was coming, and they thought, this deal is so unfair, because... Our time isn't up yet. What are you doing? And so he sends them into the pigs, and that backfires because all the pigs drown. Doesn't say, does that mean all the demons died that drowned? Or, or do they have to go find somewhere else to live? Or what's going to happen? Yeah. But, he, but they didn't want to be sent out of the area. They didn't want to have that control of, you know, it's like the Roman Empire does not want to be ousted from the land of Israel. Um, we'll look at some other verses in just a second, but I just want to, I just want us to think so far, and, and there's lots of passages we didn't read where Yeshua encounters unclean spirits and casts them out and stuff. Um, I want us to analyze the method used by Yeshua to cast out demons. So let's make a list. What does Yeshua do? He's, he commands them to come out, right? What else does he do? That's, that's kind of it, right? In this case, he asks the guy's name, strikes up a conversation with him, I guess. And maybe that's more for our benefit so we get a glimpse of what's going on, right? But really, Yeshua's method was to rebuke them, command them to come out. And they obeyed. 
He didn't have like this complex strategy or method. It, I mean, and this is what shocked everyone. Because you look at the exorcism rituals from that day, even in among the Jewish people, and they were complicated things. You had to like do these weird rituals and try and do stuff to get these demons to come out. And for Yeshua, it's just so effortless. He had the authority, and he has the authority over demonic powers. Let's look at the next passage. Yeshua gives that authority to his apostles. Mark 6, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And uh, when you get to the report of when they come back, I guess it's not in Mark. I forget which gospel it's in. But when they come back, the disciples are amazed. They're like, you wouldn't believe it. The, the demons listened to us when we would cast them out. And I mean, this, this was Yeshua's authority working through his apostles. His, his apostles were like his legal representatives that he commissioned to do that, right? Uh, one more passage we'll look at, which is also kind of cool. Acts 19, verses 13 to 17. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Yeshua, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Yeshua whom Paul proclaims. Right? Because they're like, hey, this is working for these guys. Let's try it. That sounds a lot simpler than what we're used to doing. <laughs> Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Yeshua I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Yeshua was extolled. So what's cool about that passage is it shows this was not a like a ritual that they were tr that the, the apostles were following. This was not like some sort of you you follow the right you say the right formula and and you can exercise authority. No, it was Yeshua's authority that gave the apostles that authority. So, do we have that same authority? I think the answer is yes. We do. As followers of Yeshua, uh, uh, we're, we're not the apostles. I mean, I think we all know that. Uh, so we don't have the same kind of uh, representation. Uh, we, we don't represent Yeshua the same way that the apostles did, right? The apostles were the ones authorized to convey Yeshua's teaching. And thanks to them, that's why we have the apostolic scriptures written down, the New Testament, right? Uh, so we don't have that same kind of authority in that sense. But as believers, as those who are followers of Yeshua, who have been filled with his spirit, demons are not something that we need to be afraid of. Demons are not something that we need to uh, resort to bizarre tactics to try and deal with in strategic ways, right? It's, it should be simple. It's Yeshua's authority that works through us. It's not our authority. It's him, right? Yeah, we certainly haven't answered 
all our questions, but I personally, I think there's two extremes when it comes to uh, ideas about demons among believers. The one extreme is to deny that demons exist or that, or to deny the danger of evil spiritual influences, right? Um, that's one extreme. Uh, the other extreme is to attribute everything and anything to demons, right? Obsession, uh, uh, being obsessed with demons, finding demons in every object and problem, under every rock and tree. And, um, you know, it, it starts to take the focus off of God, right? Uh, and more than that, I think there's the danger that you see in some groups of not taking personal responsibility for your actions because you blame it on demonic influence or or the devil made me do it or something like that, right? You know, well, you know, I have this problem with sin because of this demonic oppression and I keep trying to get it delivered and, and it's a tough one, right? This This demon is tough to get rid of and that's why I keep struggling with my sin. And, and um, it's it's easy to allow that to become an excuse to excuse your behavior instead of taking responsibility. At the same time, I think that sometimes people give demons way too much credit. You know, there's the, theologically, this is called dualism. The idea that there is a good God and a bad God, and they're roughly equal in terms of strength. It's a pretty even match. In the end, you know, we're rooting for the good God, and in the end, we, we're pretty sure the good God's going to win, or we know the good God's going to win, but, but it's kind of an even match. That's called dualism, right? And sometimes that's almost what it seems like in, among some spiritual warfare proponents, right? It, it almost seems like, I mean, yeah, we know that God is going to win, but in the meantime, it seems like it's a pretty even match, you know, between Satan and his his minions and God and his angels. And, and it's up to us as believers to uh, do things to help the angels fight back the demons. And I think that gives the demons too much credit. Um, and we need to remember that Satan is defeated, right? This is, he has no power that God does not allow him to have, right? He's on a leash, and he is no match for God. So that's something I think that we need to keep in mind. All right. Um, yeah, I want to talk a bit about symbolic actions and legal formulations. Uh, this is just, there's, there's a lot of um, things like this in, among spiritual warfare proponents. Uh, in the worldview of some spiritual warfare proponents, everything we do as believers can carry symbolic weight that affects the spiritual world. Our prayer and our worship serves as fuel to help the good spiritual forces in their fight against the bad spiritual forces. And then some ritual actions are given symbolic weight. So, for example, you'll see people uh, marching around in a circle and praying or using flags or, like we talked about last night, shofars, a common one. You know, blowing a shofar is not just uh, a ritual, but it's, it has a spiritual power imbued in it uh, to 
conquer demonic forces. Other ritual objects, uh, like, you know, even among messianics, uh, charismatic messianics, talits, uh, tefillin, things like this. Sometimes, sometimes rituals and ritual objects can take on this sense that, in my opinion, borders on uh, superstition, a superstitious attitude. Uh, yeah, yeah, it can become an idol, right? Um, and certainly not all the, all the time, and that's certainly not an argument against rituals. I'll come back to that in a second, but... Uh, it it depends how we're using them, like and and so yeah. So so for some for some people, there's symbolic weight added, right? So in some messianic circles, the shofar is used as a spiritual weapon rather than a call to repentance, and this is kind of a result of what you know when you mix Jewish symbols with certain Christian theologies, you get a very interesting. Uh, Mixture. <laughs> interesting results, right? And you know, it's interesting that uh, evangelical Christianity in general usually has a negative attitude toward the word ritual uh, or toward rituals in general. But rituals are an important part of our faith uh, as evangelicals, as charismatics, as whatever you might be, as messianics. Uh, in the charismatic world, there's a lot of rituals that are involved, um, although they don't usually use that term, right? Uh, last night I was talking about a congregation that Daria visited in the States, and one thing that they did, uh, help me if I get the details wrong here, so th they felt led to take a bunch of sticks of wood and inscribe the Shema on, the, on these sticks. And then they planted these sticks under water in this little lake and made kind of like an underwater fence that was invisible. No one could see it. And then what was the hurricane that came through then later that year? Uh, it might have been Hurricane Katrina. I'm not sure which one it was. And amazingly the hurricane came up to that where that lake was, where this invisible fence was, and then it turned, and it, it didn't come past on that territory. And so they attributed that to this symbolic action of planting these sticks under the water with the Shema inscribed on them. And, yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. You can't just discount that out of hand because it, was that a coincidence? It, it was God telling them to do that? You know, I... Don't want to make a judgment call on that, but there are stories like this of things things like that that people do. You, you do something, uh, a ritual of some kind, and it is believed that the ritual itself ha has some spiritual power imbued in it, or that God uses it somehow to affect a spiritual purpose. So, I don't know. I... Not sure uh, what to say about that. I mean, God gets the glory for protecting people from that hurricane, right? And we should give him all the glory for that. So, but that's, that's one example of using uh, 
symbolic actions. Legal formulations. This is, there's often, uh, you often hear about terms like binding and loosing in connection with deliverance ministries, right? Uh, so the idea is that as believers, our job is to bind demonic forces and loose spiritual blessings, I guess, right? Uh, the words that you speak affect the spiritual world. So, you know, quoting the right Bible verse or saying the right words gives you authority over a demon that it's apparently constrained to obey. And, and then you can bind them using these techniques. Uh, I just want to look at, do I have them on here? Yeah. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. I want to look at some of the passages where where these concepts come from. Matthew twelve twenty nine. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So this verse is interpreted by some spiritual warfare proponents to mean that this is what our job is as believers. Our job is to bind the strong man, representing uh, the devil or powerful demons, and, uh, and then we can plunder all the spiritual blessings that that strong man is holding back, right? And so this is used for, uh, this verse is used, applied to spiritual warfare. Uh, I'm going to suggest, however, that that's not what this verse is talking about. If you read it in context, so the verse before, uh, a couple of verses before, uh, Yeshua is confronting the claim of people who were skeptical and or jealous of Yeshua's success at casting out demons, <laughs> right? It's like, this guy, it's too easy for him. And so they came up with this theory that, well, it's because he's casting out demons using Beelzebub, the prince of demons, to cast them out. In other words, he's using demonic forces to accomplish these miracles, right? And Yeshua says, you know, no house divided against itself can stand, right? If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So if we carry the logic through, who's the guy binding the strong man in this parable? It's Yeshua. And the strong man is the devil. So Yeshua is telling this parable to discount these rumors or accusations against him that he is using demonic powers to cast out demons, right? So I don't think this is meant to apply to our role in spiritual warfare. That's, that's not the point of the parable. Um, so, yeah. Uh, another passage, actually a, collection of passages, Matthew 16, 19. Uh, Yeshua is talking to Peter here. 
He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is where Yeshua makes Peter the first pope. And no, <laughs> um, no, that's not what he does here. Yeshua <laughs> is, is giving Peter authority, right, to bind and loose. What does that mean to bind and loose? Well, in some spiritual warfare circles, that means binding demons and loosing. I don't know. Would you ever loose a demon? I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone does that. I hope not. But <laughs> So I don't know why you're given the authority to do both, right? It's like, well, so we can choose to either bind or loose this demon. Which one are we going to choose, right? You know, I don't think this is talking about binding and loosing demons or binding and loosing blessings. Let's go again to where this same language is repeated in Matthew 18, 18. And actually, uh, if you back up a few verses, the context is dealing with people who are uh, in... Uh, Issues of sin in the community, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, you know, just the two of you. If he, you know, if he refuses to listen, then there's the next step. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, these verses have been used for a wide variety of applications. The most common is to talk about when, if two or three believers are together praying, then, God, then Yeshua is with them. And that's true, but that's not the point Yeshua is trying to make here. He's talking about dealing with community decisions and halakha, right? Binding and loosing is rabbinic terminology for permitting and forbidding a action, right? So, you, I mean, you see this sort of thing all throughout the Talmud. Uh, you know, they bring up a case. Uh, is it permitted to do such and such? And this rabbi permits it, this rabbi forbids it, right? Are you allowed to uh, do this on the Sabbath? Well, this rabbi says it's okay. This rabbi says it isn't. It's the, it's the same same language going on here, right? And in those days, well, and from the Torah, right, two or three witnesses are required for uh, certain cases. And the idea of that constitutes a minimum court. Two or three is a bait din, right? Uh, a court of people who are able to make a ruling about certain issues. So Yeshua is giving, you know, that authority that he gave to Peter, here he's giving to the entire community of believers, right? It's not just Peter being the lone guy at the top of the grand pyramid called Roman Catholicism. <laughs> it's, uh, this, is, this is an authority that is not just for him, right? So again, I don't think in context, these passages have anything to do with spiritual warfare or binding and loosing demons. Um, another passage, oh, I don't have it on here, is, is uh, this idea of strongholds. That's another common language uh, term that you hear used in spiritual warfare is spiritual strongholds. I do want to look at this verse because this is actually uh, 
very pertinent to our topic. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. This is where the language of strongholds comes from and uh, why, how it's been applied to spiritual, spiritual warfare. And uh, so Paul says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So if you read just that verse, and, you know, it, and uh, there's an obvious parallel with what he says in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God, right? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So strongholds are believed to be like bastions of demonic oppression or something that we're, we are called to battle against, to wage war against these in a direct warfare. But, but look at what he goes on to say. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Messiah being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He's talking not about these abstract spiritual forces, but about ideologies, about philosophies, about arguments against Scripture, against God, right? Okay, so these, he's talking about demolishing arguments against the gospel. All right, one thing I want to bring up here is the theology behind the sacrificial system. I know this may sound like a little off topic at first, but uh, yeah, it, Jacob Milgram is a Jewish scholar. He's not a believer, uh, but he wrote uh, a commentary on the book of Leviticus. I have uh, volume one, which is this thick, and there's three volumes. So it's quite amazing. You know, among Christian scholars, you know, you can get through a commentary on Leviticus in, you know, half an inch. But uh, this guy has these massive volumes that take up half your bookshelf <laughs> just on the book of Leviticus. Anyway, uh, he's, he's not necessarily a conservative scholar, right? I'm not exactly sure what his faith commitment was, but he makes an interesting point about the theology of the book of Leviticus and the theology of the sacrificial system as represented in the Torah in general. When you compare it with other systems in the pagan religions that were around in those days. And, and this, I thought, was very interesting because a lot of liberal scholars are going to say, oh, the Israelites, they, just, they were just borrowing from all the pagan religions, right? All the pagans did sacrifices too. The Israelites just borrowed that. You know, the pagans had taboos and kind of like unclean ideas and clean and unclean. But, and so the Israelites just borrowed all that from the pagans. And Jacob Milgram's like, no, actually, there are some clear fundamental differences, right? The, the pagan religions saw their rituals as an attempt to tap into the metaphysical divine realm in order to manipulate the host of good and bad gods or spirits to act beneficially to oneself and maleficently to one's enemies, right? So they, they believed that there is this, this meta-divine realm and all the gods are subservient to that realm. So if you can tap into that realm, you can actually manipulate and control the gods the way you want them to. And you can control the demons. You can get the demons away from you and onto your enemies, things like that, right? 
this whole idea of cursing your enemies, that's, that's the concept behind it, right? You do these rituals, you do these incantations, you can drive the evil forces away from you and onto people you don't like. Um, but according to Milgram, Jacob Milgram, the Torah's sacrificial and purity system categorically denies the pagan worldview. Because according to Torah, there is only one God, and he is not controlled by some higher meta-divine realm, nor does he have any peers or competitors. You can't, you can't tap into this realm that can manipulate or control God. Right? Torah is very clear about that. In Torah, according to Milgram, humans have taken the place that the demons are in pagan societies. So in, in pagan societies, uh, they would do these cleansing rituals to purify themselves or the, the sacred precincts, the temples of demonic contamination. They're trying to drive all the demons out of the temple, right? When they do these ceremonies. Uh, whereas you look at the Day of Atonement, there's nothing about demons. Instead, it's human impurity. We're the culprits. We're the ones that threaten to drive God's presence away by our sins and by our impurity. And so that's why he says humans have replaced the demons. I mean, there are still demons in Scripture, obviously, but, but their role is drastically lowered from the way it is in, in pagan societies. Um, the viability of God's presence among his people is threatened not by demonic forces, but by human sinfulness. Also, in Torah, impurity is undemonized. Unlike paganism, impurity in the Torah is harmless to humans, aside from the potential effect it has on the sanctuary, right? Humans contract ritual impurity as part of everyday life, and there are simple procedures to follow to become pure again. There's, there isn't this... Um, stigmatism against people who are impure as though they're contaminated by demons, like there is in pagan societies, right? Uh, all the procedures in the Torah for cleansing are very conspicuously absent of the incantation, incantation or gesticulation that are the quintessential ingredients in pagan healing rites. So, you know, the Torah says, you, you know, immerse, uh, and after evening you're clean, Right? In the pagan uh, cleansing rituals, there's all these, you know, the priest has to wave his hand, and then he has to say these spells and, and you know, drive the demonic forces away. And, like, it's completely different, right? Uh, even in cases of bodily discharges, according to Torah, it's the discharge that contaminates, whereas in paganism, it was the man himself or the woman herself who contaminates because their discharge was merely a symptom of demonic possession or demonic defilement. In Torah, that's, that demonic defilement is completely gone from the purity system. So in sum, the Torah's sacrificial and purity system completely changes the playing field. While the pagans focused on trying to tap into and manipulate the spiritual realm, the Torah focuses on human actions and decisions. The battle between life and death is not waged by attacking demonic forces. Instead, we choose life by obeying God's commandments. Right? So let me ask you, which of these two theological systems does some of the modern spiritual warfare practices resemble, right? I mean, think of, you know, the pagans all had their amulets, their charms, you know, the lucky charms. You, you have these 
ritual things that are imbued with spiritual power to either drive away evil forces or attract to you good spiritual forces. Uh, and think about when some, some of the ritual symbolic actions that modern Christians use in spiritual warfare. I'm not saying it's all like that. Definitely not. But it can get eerily close to that pagan theology sometimes in some circles. Which brings us to talk about what is the true purpose of ritual in our lives? What is, what is ritual for? Like I said earlier, I, I don't think ritual is a bad thing. Uh, but, and I know we don't always like to use the term ritual, but the fact is we all have rituals in our lives as believers, right? We all have practices and habits that we invest with religious significance. And ideally, that's a healthy and vibrant part of our spiritual lives as believers. Uh, you know, uh, so a lot of the rituals that evangelicals and messianics and uh, charismatics have are related to prayer, right? So, for example, we pray at certain times before eating or, or after eating or both, right? Uh, we pray in certain postures. You bow your head or you fold your hands or you raise your hands, right? Uh, some messianics include Jewish ritual objects in their prayers, such as talits or tefillin. Uh, so these are all rituals that we have, right? So the question is, what, what do these rituals do? What is their function? What's the benefit from following these rituals? And on the flip side, what, is the, what are the negative consequences for failing to follow these rituals? For example, if I don't pray before I eat, am I going to get sick? Is the food going to be contaminated by demons because I didn't pray over it first? Well, no, of course not, right? If I don't bow my head when I pray, will my prayer be less effective? No, right? Uh, does wearing a talit or wearing tefillin help to ward off evil spirits? No, <laughs> actually, um, tefillin... In, in Greek, they translated them as phylacteries because when the Greeks saw Jews wearing these things, they just assumed that, oh, they're wearing those to drive the evil spirits away, right? These are amulets. So, but no, the purpose is totally different, right? Um, another example of a ritual, God instructs us to write his commandments on the doorposts of our houses, right? The mezuzah that we put on our, our doorposts. What does the mezuzah do? Does it drive the evil spirits away from our property? No. I want to argue that all the rituals we do do have a spiritual effect, but the effect is not out there somewhere in the spiritual realm helping angels and hindering demons. Instead, the effect is inside me. These things serve as reminders and guides to habituate our lives around God's word. Our habits form us and shape us, and we use ritual to cultivate godly habits that help us conform more to Messiah's image, shaping our character and our attitude. If I forget to bless God for the food I eat, it may not have any immediate effect on me, right? But if I forget repeatedly and develop a habit of forgetfulness, over time, it will change my attitude in ways that I don't necessarily perceive. I might lose an attitude of gratefulness toward God. I might forget that every good thing that I enjoy is a gift from him. I might become proud. I might delude myself into thinking that I'm self-sufficient. 
eventually my heart might become cold, not only towards God, but also in ungratefulness towards other people, right? It might leave me more susceptible to forget God in other areas of my life and weaken my resolve to follow him. So all this to say, yes, there is a, a sense in which failing to bless God for the food I eat or, or pick any other ritual that we do that we find meaningful, there's a sense in which this is part of spiritual warfare. It's part of the battle. But the battlefield is not in the cosmic wars and the heavenlies. The battlefield is in me. The battlefield is over whether I will choose to follow God in every moment of every day or not. Okay. Um, we're not going to look at all these passages, obviously. Uh, in fact, I think we'll just give a brief summary <laughs> as we... Look at them on the slide. So Ephesians 6, the armor of God, we already looked at that, that passage a little bit. Uh, Romans 7, Paul talks about an internal battle with sin. So he's using, he's using warfare imagery, but he's, he's talking not about fighting demons. He's talking about a battle inside me over whether I'm going to follow God or, or follow sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 Paul uses self-discipline as a, as a uh, he's talking about self-discipline, right, uh, in our fight or our struggle, being a soldier or an athlete. 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 3-6, we looked at that. Um, destroying anti-God arguments. Colossians, Paul talks about fighting or struggling through his ministry. In Colossians 4.12, Epaphras is struggling or striving for the Colossians through prayer. Uh, Paul encourages Timothy to wage the good war through his ministry and through holding on to the truth. Uh, he also says, talks about being self-disciplined as a soldier of Messiah. He tells Timothy to fight the good fight. He says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. And in Hebrews 12, uh, self-discipline as a metaphor, uh, talking about our fight against sin, right? Uh, let's look quickly at James 4, 1, and then one other verse, and we'll wrap up with that. James 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The war is not between me and demons so much as it is between me and my flesh, myself, my, evil, my own evil desires, right? And last one is 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Again, here's our battlefield, right? I think... You know, we could kind of categorize spiritual warfare into two main categories. There's the defensive internal kind of spiritual warfare. And maybe defensive isn't the right term because in a sense it's all offensive. But um, the internal aspect, right, where we're, we're waging this war within ourselves. There is an external aspect to spiritual warfare, right? And that's where, you know, you don't, I don't want to give the impression that I think it would be a mistake to to say that spiritual warfare is only about me and my individual sin. 
there is a lot of darkness in the world that we as believers are called to fight, and that can take on various forms, right? Uh, there is, you know, the injustices that take place in the world, the oppression, countering satanic ideologies, unbiblical philosophies. These are all forms of spiritual warfare as well, right? And I believe we're called to participate in that as well. Another way of summarizing it, um, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, Paul mentions three opponents, three fronts of opposition uh, in, to God. There's the world, the devil, and the flesh. I think that's a good way of summarizing where our, our battlefield is. We're fighting the world, worldly ideologies and philosophies and injustices and things like that. The devil and the flesh. I'll close, close with uh, this quote uh, from Aaron Eby. He says, From a Jewish perspective, spiritual warfare still exists, but its entire context is framed differently than it is in Pentecostalism. The angels are not dependent on people to supply them with spiritual power. We're not dualists who think that God and Satan are basically equal but opposite forces. Satan does not pose even the slightest challenge to God. I believe in spiritual warfare, but I am not the hero. I am the battlefield. The battle is within my heart. My spirit, my good inclination, is at odds with my flesh, my evil inclination. And that battle is anyone's game. Yes, the shofar is one of many weapons in my arsenal, but it is not a triumphant blast at the heavens that I need. It is a broken sob of repentance. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible for the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.